Hello everybody and welcome back to the Good Game Podcast. In this episode we present the second part of our two-part interview with Sam Barlow, so if you haven't had a chance to listen to the first part, please feel free to go back and give that a listen. For those of you who have already heard the first part, I hope you enjoyed this second part also. Um, this is the final episode for season one of uh, the Good Game podcast. Season two will be published later this year. Um, so John and I hope that you have enjoyed this first season. As we mentioned in the previous episode, please feel free to give us feedback on whatever channel you prefer. Um, enjoy the episode and uh, you'll hear more from us later this year. imagine no I, I was just thinking about uh, th- especially in video games you have this you have the story as you that the game creator have thought it out and uh, how this is exposed uh, or revealed to the player and you have to I guess I guess you kind of predict what the player is going to do I can see that's a challenge that's kind of unique to vi- storytelling in video games or like like trying to anticipating what the player is going to do um, I guess, I mean, the, one of the things that I had in my mind a lot, so the, before I made Her Story, I'd spent three years working on uh, a game in the Legacy of Kane series, which was cancelled. And this was kind of following up from Shattered Memories. And in Shattered Memories, we'd, we'd played this slightly elaborate game of, of really questioning what it meant to be a protagonist in a video game and uh, the extent to which you project on to this character. And, and with the Legacy of Kane thing, uh, I was heavily digging further into like I was a huge fan of Hitchcock and suspense and, and I was really digging into the extent to which uh, a director like Hitchcock or, or most movie directors are very carefully giving bits of information to the audience in order to create a very precise reaction uh, to bring out certain desires or expectations in the audience which they can then upend or, or, or use for their own purposes. Um, and so I was thinking a lot about how, um, the, our worlds were not entirely different. Like as, as much as a movie is a passive experience, the story is still being told in our brains, in our imagination. And, you know, when Hitchcock shows us a thing and then comes back to another thing, he's really trying to give us, you know, he, you know, if you show someone a, a knife block in a kitchen in a suspense movie and then cut to a character you're very much setting up that combination as you know at some point someone is going to take that knife and use it to stab somebody in defense or otherwise um and so there is there is this real uh there's this game of back and forth even in something as static as a movie and a lot of it is happening in your imagination and and really what i was trying to do with the legacy of ken game was create a video game that really lent into that just in terms of uh, understanding that there was this back and forth between uh, everything you were being shown on screen or asked to do on screen and what your interpretation of that was um, and how that then was reflected through the the actions you took in game. And, And so then, yeah, going into her story, 
from that project, again, it was very much seeing things along similar lines that um, the, the other big leap with her story was in acknowledging that all the good stuff that happens in a video game is still happening in your imagination. And I think sometimes we forget that because we think of video games as being a more uh, contiguous, it's, it's the everything medium. Like if I'm playing Grand Theft Auto, I can spin the camera around 360 degrees and see everything. And I can get in a taxi and drive all the way across Manhattan yeah, it's, and, a, it's a virtual reality. Yeah, and you, you, you know, famously, video games are very thorough when it comes to uh, modeling toilets, right? So I can go into the <laughs> restroom. Yeah. There are so many games where it's like, there should be a restroom here, so there's going to be a restroom. So you're going to mm. go into the restroom and you can flush it. And then, you know, there's a kind of test to see how thoroughly implemented the waterworks will be in a video game. I, mm. think, I think I can remember explicitly as a young kid, probably like nine, playing like the Duke Nukem shareware. Mm-hmm. And like, I think that was one of the first times like a toilet flushed in a game and be, and just being ecstatic. Yeah, and, and and you can see yourself in the mirror. And I mean, remember that game being so interactive in a way that I didn't remember other games being. Yeah, no, uh, I I remember playing that on. I think I was doing like work experience in an office, and they had it like on the shared network or something. But it felt it, and I was like, this is so cool because of the all these different immersive, interesting things. But then every now and then there would be a pixelated stripper. Mm. And I'd suddenly be very aware that I was in a group of Oh, I, as a as a ten year old boy, I was very aware. <laughs> <laughs> but and th- but I think it's very uh, like it's it's something to me at maybe at least uh, uh, when talking about video games in school and maybe video games in general, we 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 don't talk about that enough. I think the, the idea that video games uh, the story is like you say, uh, going on in your living in your imagination, so to speak. I remember playing uh, XCOM Terror from the Deep. If you guys have played that. Um, and and having despite like this really like pixelated graphics being it's, very, it's sometimes even being difficult to tell what's going on i remember that like having this very vivid theater of the mind kind of thing going on imagining how it would actually look like you know and a little part of me is is still enjoying the old xcom game more because of they they not letting me fill in the blanks i mean the some like the recent games they they fill in too much they leave so little to the imagination in the way and i think you definitely see that in some indie games where uh they are deliberately embracing some of the more lo-fi graphics because it does give you that sense and there are people who might mm. not be aware of why it is but they look back on those earlier games and they're like i felt something more you know, the felt me stronger. And famously, like Nintendo has resisted pushing into too photorealistic a direction because it it, it breaks that and, uh, and your ability to believe in the world disappears. Um, yeah, I mean, when, when all games are photorealistic, they all look the same, I think, in a way. Yeah, and I think the, the, the more systemic games struggle as well because suddenly, uh, you know, there is the the uncanny valley and what have you but like just the the expectation of simulation uh shifts uh it's funny i replayed uh with my son resident evil the resident evil 2 remake recently which uh on one level was annoying to me because like (laughs) having tried to innovate the horror genre when we were doing silent hill to then replay the classic 
like archetypal survival horror with all the weirdness and tropes of uh, and and have them all be entirely un uh, unadjusted and unfixed was like oh this should not be selling so well in 2019 um, but it was funny to yeah, say that it's it's kind of like the the wow classic thing it's like are, are you really going to pay for something that's kind of not as good <laughs> And people thinking well, the, features are bugs. <laughs> well, I mean, the interesting thing was, we're, so we're playing this game, and obviously the camera is more unrestricted now, and the level of photorealism is actually greater than the original game. And so things like, uh, you know, we got to a point where my character, who is, is, you know, about to be eaten by a bunch of flesh-eating zombies, and he just happens to have on him a rocket launcher, and we can't get through the door because it requires the bronze key. So my son is like, blow up the door. And I'm like, oh no, 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 son, that's not how how video games work, and particularly old <laughs> yeah. video games. And and you know, even back then, with the, the the simpler graphics and the restricted viewpoint, like you you gave it more of a free pass because you're like, oh, I get there is this video game logic at play here. But when you're yeah in, in this photorealistic world and and there's clutter around and and it's like well. You know, and you're trying to solve a puzzle that involves you know, needs a length of rope or something, and it's like, well, we just rang through a room with a million <laughs> fabrics and beautifully rendered chains. Why can't we use those? And it's like, no, no, yeah. it needs to be the one that sparkles. Yeah, you can only you can only suspend your disbelief for so long, I guess. Which, and it's a very interesting point you're making because uh, this, um, I, I guess, it plays or it affects the the ability for uh, how games are like. Some kinds can feel like this. A magical playground where you can do almost anything until you notice the obvious thing that you should be able to do what you can't do uh, yeah and i think that was uh one of the things that i guess i was i well i think i was conscious of when i was making her story was i loved the idea of the magical freedom to type into an, an old text game anything right they would they would sell these games by saying you can type anything and it will become real and you will write the story or whatever but if you had played enough of those text games, you knew that there were probably 20 verbs that would be recognized. And every now and then something would come out that would would allow you to to think outside the box and it would be reacted to by the game and it would feel magical. So there was, uh, and, but usually these were very kind of deliberate efforts. So uh, spoilers, but there's uh, this great text game, Photopia by Adam Cadre, which is this, this tragedy about a, a teenage girl um, and part of the format is that it, it kind of jumps back and forth between her as a babysitter telling a story, I think, to it's either maybe it's her father telling her a story in her memory or, or, or then maybe she retells the story to the kid she's babysitting. Um, and every now and then you'll play out one of these little bedtime stories. And there is one where you're on Mars and you're an, an alien and you get stuck in this maze, which, you know, at that point was was kind of a a very traditional element go, of a classic text game. Like you, get, you get stuck in a maze and over the time there were, uh, you had an understanding of, oh, to solve mazes, like if the maze doesn't actually obey the laws of physics, the, there was a whole system where you would like place objects on the ground to help you map it, or you might get pen and paper out and figure out logic. Um, but famously in this sequence, something very subtly clues you into the fact that you do not have an entirely human physiology and the solution to this maze is to type fly or open wings and to realize that actually your character has wings and can just fly out of this maze um, and continue on and, and for the people that 
realize that themselves, it was very exciting because it was not conventional, like the word fly was not a conventional part of your text adventure vocabulary. So you would have the thought and be like, wait a minute. And then you'd be like, oh, I'm going to type this, but it's probably not going to work. And then you'd type it and then it would work and it would feel magical. Um, and I remember that to me was the beautiful thing or the beautiful promise of like the text parser games, which was very rarely realized because 99% of the time, the parser would not understand what you're saying or the world model of the game would not support it. And really when I had the concept of her story, I was like, this is great because it gives you that blinking cursor and the freedom to type anything and it will support there being big leaps and these exciting moments where you think of something and type it and you're rewarded, but also like the negative case where it, it doesn't understand what you're typing will make complete sense because we get this is a database. It's not, you're not having a conversation with a real human. It's not pretending to be fully natural language. It, and, and we all, we all Google, we all use our computers and our phones and we know that you know, these things will just say no, and then you keep going. Um, and I think there was, I think Mike Bithell, who who did Thomas Was Alone, a bunch of cool games. I remember when he wrote a piece about her story where he talked about the problem of the detective genre and how uh, he th he thought of it, he tried to, he used a clever metaphor where he talked about the problem of, of shooting a gun in a game um, is that like you, you want everyone to be a cool sharpshooter, but, um, that's very hard to implement and we have control issues and not everyone is actually has the skills to be a sharpshooter so what most games do is give you the gun and then help you aim they'll like auto aim or they'll like tweak your your aiming or they'll curve the bullets through space and what he felt was the beauty of her story was that we gave you a broken gun but then left you free to do with it as you will so it was like you understood that like the possibility space maybe was reduced in some way or just like the functionality was constrained in this awkward way. But within that, we actually gave you the freedom. Um, so it felt much more like you were getting to actually play with this thing or play in the space um, than you would expect it. Yeah, that, that, that's something that's been on my mind this whole conversation is I, I think one of the, the big reasons that I, I love using her story in my class and, I, and I'm passionate about, about games of all kinds of different types in the classroom is they do give students freedom and they don't really get that anywhere else, at least in a, in a traditional kind of curriculum. And, and for me to, to sit down with them with her story and, and basically when I introduce it, I just pop it up on the screen and I say, you know, guys, good luck. And, and they just dive in. And I think the game itself and, and the context of that is such a huge difference where we say, you know what, you can figure it out. And because it's so it's such a magnetic thing to, to have access to that, that broken gun and a, and a toolbox that they, they just seem to jump, it, jump right in. And that actually brings me to what you said before, where you felt that her story was, it was more of like a, a, a confession or therapy, more conversation. But what really attracted me was the fact that I feel it, it's more of a conflict because Hannah is an unreliable narrator. And you figure that out you know, fairly quickly, even as the, the other depths of the narrative are, are, are still uncharted. And, and you talk about that in, in, on the Her Story blog as well, when you say, talking about the detective story, you go, and those narrators. Detective stories are full of unreliable narrators spinning contradictory stories. 
These stories frequently change and often the very act of the detective comparing different story that highlights problems and provokes this change. So that I swear I did not read that blog entry until I was getting ready for this uh, this episode. But that was exactly what attracted me to her story was it was an unreliable narrator. So as an English teacher, I was like, all right, I'm going to go find a bunch of unreliable narrators. We're going to learn all the, all the skills and the mechanics, and then I'm going to let them loose with Hannah and see how they do. And I think that's what's cool about games is it is the test. Like if you can get through her story and figure it out, congratulations, you're good with unreliable narrators. And, and, and I think to me like that, that's what's so powerful about her story. What, what kind of drew you in and why did you want to use that kind of con- contested element of, of narratives? I mean, I think uh, there's a great quote from Gene Wolfe, right, where because he he writes uh, the best uh, and, and most complicated or subtle unreliable narrators. And I think someone asked him, why do you write so many characters who are unreliable narrators? And he said, well, because everybody is an unreliable narrator. Right? Like that is, is almost a basic definition of being human. Um, and and I, in, on a very conscious level, going into her story, I had uh come out of, of, of working so uh with some of shadow memories very explicitly on a level we, we had this unreliable narrator um but one of those who is not necessarily aware of his own the the the, the truth of his own kind of nature so it's it, it's a very kind of naive unreliable narrator um and i've read a lot of stuff to kind of prep for writing that um and going into working on legacy of kane I was constantly in conflict with the publisher because this was like a bigger budget game and it, it didn't have like the Silent Hill vibe going. That was always like my get out of jail free card. If people were like, is this too, is this too nerdy or too weird or too psychological? I'd be like, it's Silent Hill guys. Like that's, I gotta do it. Um, with this one, so uh, there was this constant expectation that the video game narrative was not just a story, but was also a mission briefing and, and 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 a tutorial and like all of the very functional stuff was happening through the story. Um, and there was also uh, we had a a, a producer uh, who will go nameless who would read the script and he'd be like, "I don't get it. Why don't these characters just say what they're thinking?" <laughs> And, and would be like, because that's not how you write, right? That's not good. And and, uh, and I'd, I'd explain. Uh, also, the whole... pe- people don't do that. Yeah, I, I, I would I'd explain the concept of subtext to him and I'd explain good writing. And I'd be like, you, if, you, if you have these characters just say out loud what it is they want or are doing or whatever, then the actors will struggle to, to say the lines. Uh, it will just be very bad. Um, but then the, the producer would push back and it'd be like, but look, the the state of the art of video game motion capture is such that I'm worried that all this sophistication you're talking about, like will be lost on them because the faces of our video game characters will not be able to communicate it. Um, and, and, you know, we don't want players being confused about the motivations of the character they're controlling because they should have this mind link going on. And, and AI was opposed to that idea anyway. I was like, did you, you, a lot of the interesting protagonists are ones that you you don't necessarily completely get what's happening and it doesn't just because you're controlling a video game doesn't mean we throw that out um but also i was like 
yes, there are challenges with using motion capture, but let's at least aim for good. <laughs> let's not just give up. So when I went into her story, I had this very explicit uh, goal, which was I want to make a video game about subtext. Um, and coming from like this, this, this kind of having schooled myself, particularly on unreliable narrators to make some shadow of memories, having done some of that on Legacy of Kane, like that was almost like my default. Was like, and, and, and as well, the, the cool thing was, was then the research process on this of reading about, well, how do police interrogations actually work? And the number one thing they do, there is no clever thing. There is no, um, there is no like confession usually. Or what they usually do is just ask open questions, call someone back a few days later, ask them the same question, and they just let people talk. And people who are lying will naturally, obviously, at some point contradict themselves or use tells in their language. Um, and reading this, I was like, oh, this is, this is so cool because this is in my head, like this is not, not necessarily the game mechanic, but like this is how we have come to think of, of, of kind of figuring this stuff out. And this is the tool set you use when engaging with an unreliable narrator. If I read a Gene Wolfe novel, like, you know, that guy is, is maddening. Like he will write 5,000 pages and there are two pages which actually reveal the twist. <laughs> so you have to be paying attention. And he will throw in like, oh, a character uses the wrong tense or the wrong pronoun or says something that, you know, there'll be these tiny little tells that he'll throw in and, and reading these training manuals and stuff and reading and looking at transcripts of seeing this actually in the wild um, was exciting to me because I was like, you would, and I loved, and this is one of the things that as well makes her story slightly different is like when you sit and read a novel which has an unreliable narrator very rarely is the book checking in with you to make sure you've got it like there's going to be still a spine of the narrative that you're at least following um and in the case of gene wolf you might get to the end of the novel and not actually realize this was an unreliable narrator or, or exactly how that worked but all of that cool stuff of you realizing what's happening picking up on tells suddenly having this whole layer of dramatic irony because you realize what's really happening the extent to which the narrator is lying to themselves or to the unseen uh, kind of audience member um, like that all that stuff is like the joy of that is is that you are picking up on it without having it spoon fed to you and and it ends it kind of adds this sophisticated layer i think it was uh i think it was actually andrew plotkin was writing about a puzzle game once and he said that the in his head the perfect puzzle was one in which when you figured out the solution, you knew you were right just because the solution fits so perfectly. You didn't need to have it confirmed. You didn't need any kind of additional verification. Um, and so I think in, in thinking about that, that led to the thought that like, well, can I make a game where we have this whole layer of, of actually reading between the lines, of picking up on the tells, verbal or physical or, or in the language, or just noticing contradictions by stories that are repeated. Um, and we don't need the game to pat you on the back because if you notice these things and, and, and pick up on it, you've kind of already figured it out. And then there is this beautiful extra step in her story where occasionally you will get to verify these things for yourself by kind of uh, picking up on something that you believe is a contradiction or, or reveals some other truth and then figuring out the search term that might confirm this theory you have and, and then 
that actually does confirm it. Um, and again, at no point has the game patted you on the back and said, you figured this thing out. Nothing has flashed up and appeared in your score or anything. It's like, but, but you know, like you've had the idea, you've tested it and it's been proven right. And now all the satisfaction is yours, but there's something extra lovely about that being something that's happening entirely in your head. Yeah, I mean, whenever I play Hearthstone with my, with, uh, my students and then they're and just watching them play through it, just like the the ripple of energy that goes through when they find that clip that either confirms their theory or completely destroys their theory, and like you know, they're, they're, it's just it's like a joy, and and that's something that you know I rarely see with most other narratives that I do. Um, but they're they're doing all the same skills that I want them to do while we're reading you know, Cask of Amontillado or, you know, uh, in a grove or we're studying these other unreliable narrators. It's this, yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the freedom that they were the one that discovered it. It wasn't just, they read the next paragraph. Um, it was, they figured out, they put the search term in and it's like, it's a small, just slight twist on that narrative experience, but it, 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 it makes such a huge difference. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, it could be. And I think I, I kind of built on this we're telling lies to some extent, but like there's something as well that's expressive about it just because there are lots of words in the English language. And when you choose to search for a particular word, or if you pick up on three or four different clues in inverted commas or things that you think might reveal more information, you get to choose one of those. Um, and, it, and it feels slightly more expressive than a video game normally would be, it, you know, where it would present some fixed options or something. Um, and that was like another thing that appealed to me. There was a great, um, one of these academic texts that I was reading for her story uh, had this whole concept uh, that I think came from some academic discipline. Um, and they were talking about uh, the third participant in an interview. So you would have the, the detective and you'd have the suspect, but every conversation could be understand with reference to a third participant. So in the way the detective was asking a question and in the way a suspect would answer them, they were both aware of the fact that this thing was being recorded and at a later date would be played back as evidence. So oftentimes you would, uh, you know, the detective is phrasing a question in such a way that he is, he is kind of pivoting the discussion towards this unseen audience. And in answering it, a suspect will often kind of quote back the question to properly kind of contextualize what they're about to say, or even give it a slightly different nuance. Um, and, so, and, and, and this kind of into this kind of academic discussion, they, they keep throwing around this idea of the invisible third participant. I just remember getting so excited because I was like, well, that's the player. I was like, that's the player or the audience or the reader. And you have this, this scenario that makes room for this voiceless third participant who is actually still the most important person in the room um, and, and realizing that I was creating an experience that, that gave more life and form to that was exciting. So do you think that, because um, speaking of Gene Wolfe's quote about, you know, everyone's an unreliable narrator, but do you think that that studying an unreliable narrator, like I kind of imagine it and I, and I usually tell my students this, that it's, a way to get kind of intellectual or civics self-defense, you know, that, that it's like, guys, you got to learn how to parse when someone is lying to you, or maybe even realize when they don't know that they're lying to you. So do you think that there's like a transference studying this type of thing in fiction for, you know, real life? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's, like I say, it's the truth of what Gene Wolfe was saying is that, uh, you know, people are more complicated than you think that, uh, you know, everything that's being communicated between people it goes deeper than the surface. And clearly in life, understanding that, yeah, there, you need to dig deeper than that and, and just understanding that there is more richness uh, and interest um, in, in every single person that you're talking to, every interaction um, that you're having is obviously uh, super useful. So I can, I'm justifying my reading of, of all the Gene Wolfe novels now. Yeah, because another thing for me is that, you know, I would obviously when thinking about the kind of contextualizing it for real life, like you want to immediately turn to like the real world. But quickly you get kind of like in the really political territory almost immediately. And and I think that once you kind of frame it that way, many people like their their political barriers immediately go up and they either fall on a confirmation bias one way or the other. But when like when I'm studying it with through fiction and her story and others, I think it kind of gets through those barriers because it feels like it's not in that political context, which which I hope like allows them to get more out of it than if we, you know, read a bunch of opposing op eds. I think as well, there's a there's a moral twinge when especially these days when you talk about truth and honesty and reliability. Where in, a, in essence, you're just saying that, um, and, and, and most of the good examples from fiction, it's as much um, someone knowing themselves, right? It's, it's as useful a tool to understand that, uh, to kind of double check your own motivations and the things that you're telling yourself. Um, it's definitely, I think I think the, the troublesome political stuff, I mean, especially in the modern day, like it's, it's, it's not even very good unreliable narrators now, right? It's, it's so, yeah, uh, it's kind of easy. <laughs> it's yeah, it's, it's cartoony. It's yeah, it's not like a Gmail novel where you have to read a 1000 pages and then be like, wait a minute. Um, that typo on page 30 was deliberate. And then yeah, it kind of gets unlocked. Um, but I think, I think you that, make a good point. Oh, go ahead. Um, no, I was gonna say, I think there's something um, I guess the the promise which maybe is uh not altogether realistic that the the exciting thing with an unreliable narrator especially in fiction or in a game is the idea that you can unlock the truth that like if you you know if you get the right angle on it if you figure out what's going on you get this cathartic kind of excitement where you're like oh and you get uh that nice twist which and you see it sometimes like a I saw lots of people getting excited about seeing the movie Us twice, um, which, which oftentimes is you see people with with stuff that has a particularly prominent twist or a particularly strong reveal of, of the unreliability, um, and I think there's some, like there's the excitement in having the rug pulled from under you and realizing something else was going on, but then in returning to watch it again, you get an element of mastery where you you get to be in on the joke and uh and and now kind of understanding things so there is some there is oftentimes the kind of promise that you know the world is a very complicated place and everyone has all these unknowable motivations but in these stories you can find the key that unlocks that um that actually gives you some some kind of solid ground uh in a world where there isn't much 
Yeah. So do you, so thinking about like other teachers out there, you know, the conversations I've had with, with teachers who are very, very passionate about, you know, introducing this new type of storytelling and studying the way that, you know, interactive media can, can change things. But overall, so do you think, do you think storytelling has changed in the internet age compared to, let's say, you know, the era of the printing press and before? Um, I would definitely, there's, the thing that I'm aware of and that I feel is uh, like an advantage to someone doing the stuff that I do is just the level of sophistication and the volume of information that a, a given member of the audience is going to bring to the table is exponentially greater. Um, you know, obviously, if you if you go back to uh, push all the way back to the medieval ages, if you took a random person off the planet, uh, they might know a handful of stories and the certain telling of them, and that would be their story literacy up through, you know, someone in the fifties watching uh serials on tv and reading certain books and comics like they would be exposed to a certain number of stories uh but now and and i particularly map this out when talking about the detective genre and just the layers and additional levels of complexity so um there's a great book called uh it's called everything bad is good for you or something um yes I, yeah that sounds familiar and, and and the the guy who wrote it tackles this this idea that we're dumbing down and the idea that culture is getting worse and he says well if you actually compare apples with apples so he's like instead of going uh you know uh, kardashians versus whatever the best play of the day was in 1950 he's like no the the kind of voyeuristic reality tv of the 50s was the quiz show he's like take the dumbest quiz show where the joy was watching some real person win or lose a huge amount of money and compare that with the emotional intelligence required to enjoy the kardashians with the fact that you're being asked to in, integrate yourself in the drama of these people's lives and, and realize that one is actually more sophisticated than the other and then let's compare Z cars with the wire, right? And let's, you take the cop shows of the fifties, which would have one plot and they would be told linearly and there would be very little in the way of reversals or twists. And there would be no moral ambiguity in the stories being told. And then look at the modern cop show, which might have three or four story strands, multiple time frames, countless moral ambiguities, um, much more psychological depth and, and really you know, the, the stuff that we're consuming today is that much more sophisticated. Um, and I think the great challenge that you have as a storyteller is how do you deal with an audience that has seen everything just because the volume of information they're exposed to and, and kind of even more so now, uh, you have the hive mind of the internet so that even if, if I watch a show and I don't completely get it, within five minutes of reading every recap on the internet and live tweet, I've realized what's going on. Um, so that for me, there is a shift there and it's accelerated, I guess, recently in the, just the, the volume of information, uh, the story literacy of the audience. Um, but as well that the expectation of how information will be presented to you, like, you know, I can, 
have a conversation in a bar and everyone can pull their phone out and be searching it and, and just everything is multi-tabbed and multi-threaded and all, there is more information than we need at our fingertips constantly. Um, and so the structure of a story, um, the, the, the beauty of well, the accidental beauty of her storytelling lies is to, to some extent still give you a constrained controlled piece of story, um, that is, you know, self-contained, but accessible in this way so that you can kind of attack it from different directions. It will reveal information. It has more, uh, kind of below the surface, uh, for you to discover, like there is that kind of structure to it. But I think increasingly, um, like I had a, a weird experience of, uh, seeing some kids do a focus group for another project I was working on. And, uh, a lot, a lot of the feedback that came back from these kids was like, whoa, that was really intense. I, because it was interactive, I had to concentrate and I'm not used to concentrating fully <laughs> on whatever my entertainment is like, cause I would, you know, I'm used to having this open and my phone open and I'm watching this and there's like a hundred things, different things going on. Um, so it was, there was some novelty to them to actually fully focusing on something. Um, but yeah, I think that the challenge for originality and, uh, and the kind of depth behind a show, I think is, is heightened. Yeah. I mean, just think of, um, a show like Game of Thrones that has like multiple storylines and a ton of different characters in complexity and complexity to compare to like uh, a, an older novel that could probably have been regarded as fairly complex complex at its age. So, or think about yeah, how, the, the how, thing how with, yeah, or, or how the Dark Souls. Thing with Game of Thrones was mm. uh, George R. R. Martin originally wrote that as a novel because he worked in television and he was like a writer on the show beauty and the beast, which was like a reasonably simple, uh, kind of, uh, fantasy romance thing. And, but he wrote that as a novel cause he was like, there's no way I could get this made as a TV show. There's no way this mm. would work as a TV show a story that's <laughs> on this scale, yeah, with yeah. this many things going on, uh, would work. And then obviously along comes yeah. HBO and, uh, yeah. his history. And, or you think about even, uh, I, I've when I played a game like Dark Souls, I'm almost depend completely depending on the wiki that all the like players have created because there's so. Speaking of of of, of complex story, like a complexity, and I, I can't, I would have been really struggling making sense of that the whole story of the game if I didn't have some other online, uh, well help basically. But I think as well that that is this whole interesting angle where the yes. uh, the wiki making. The, the act of wiki making of a show, that ability to dig into its secrets as a community like that is almost a, you know, is a reason behind the success of, of certain stories and certain games, right? There is um, the joy of actually, you know, there's a level of expression in being involved in those communities and putting those things together that um, again, is it's, it's much more sophisticated and challenging, um, but that in itself is a draw. Mm. So once 
like 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 you're talking about like this the media we we surround ourselves and the story we surround ourselves with getting ever more ever more complex um what what are your thoughts about uh video games now more and more entering the classroom so john has used uh for example her story in his classes i have a colleague of mine who teaches english literature he uses it in probably much the same way i think john as you use it like speaking of unreliable narrators and other kind of uh, narrative qualities and so on so what are your thoughts about uh, what are your thoughts about uh, some about teachers uh, using well, games that they already play mostly or, or other games that they hear, hear about in their classrooms Mo- uh, and, and, and and not and not using them as an as an educational tool uh, but actually just talking about them as a, an object worthy of further analysis and discussion and so on I mean, I think it's it's super cool. Like I say, going back to actually my first experiences of games being uh, in in my school classroom anyway. But um, I mean, I think on one level it's super cool because you're giving you're giving people a a lens on just the the stuff that they're consuming themselves as entertainment. Like actually thinking about it and giving them some tools to to actually process it and by bringing it into the classroom, uh, making it worthy of study and, and discussion. Um, like one of the hardest things about making stuff in the current day is like there's so much stuff and it comes out and it's coming and it's gone so rapidly that just the the extent of the discourse and the discussion um, isn't what it would have been, you know, 20 years ago when there was there were only a handful of things coming out. So the more people can be encouraged to to actually chew their food and think about it and and kind of reflect as well on those experiences um, is super cool. But I think there is there is as well something neat about using video games uh, not just as subject matter themselves for discussion, but using that as a springboard um, and understanding that um, the you know, there's a the reason video games are the way they are is because we're generally trying to model human thought processes um, and do things with them uh, consciously or unconsciously. And, and a lot of the systemic setups in video games uh, betray a lot of deep thinking in the same way that, um, you know, I remember a teacher explaining to me that the reason stories have a single protagonist and usually uh, are kind of causal in nature and uh, deal with the protagonist solving their problems. It was like, well, that's because that's what human beings think the world is like. You know, if, if we didn't believe that we were the masters of our own story and that we could actually change things and that there was some common sense causal chain of events, we would all go mad. Um, so you know, then you're like, oh, okay, I, okay, I now have an understanding of just this from a very functional level, like this is why stories are the way they are and, what, and, and why they're useful to us. Um, and, you know, I think similarly, yeah, when you, you, you look at uh, some of the structure in video games and obviously by their nature, um, video games are playful. Um, actually, there's, I remember I had a big moment when I had my first son and um, and this was where I, I started wanting to reach for slightly different experiences in video games because I remember uh, Half-Life 2 had come out 
and everyone was just over the moon about the physics in the game and that level of, of kind of slightly emergent behavior that the physics brought about and, and how incredible that all was. And I remember, and the, the exact sequence of events might be wrong in my memory, but I remember seeing my son go through that phase where he's like piling blocks up and knocking them over and doing all that kind of sandbox play. And I look over at Half-Life 2 and I'm like, oh shit, all this stuff that we think is super cool, it's just us reliving that basic learning behavior, but in this virtual sandbox. Um, and, and it feels exciting because there is this dopamine hit that comes from learning and testing and for the reason mm. that it's how we actually grow as human beings. And, um, and so and I think I, there's, sorry, go on. You know, but I think it was very interesting what you, what you uh, spoke about just now, how, and how, like you said, how video games model uh, our attempt to model human, the human thought and the, like a human experience, because you say we, we have a narrative bias towards how we experience life. And I remember introducing my colleagues to The Walking Dead uh, for a tool to teach uh, ethical reasoning or, or like a catalyst for discussion in class. And when I, I, I see my colleagues using this game, the, the, even the non-gaming teachers took it took to it quite rapidly and quite easily, which lends me, it takes me to, makes me believe that Walking Dead, a game like The Walking Dead and other video games have like in their just design built in some kind of affordances that are traits that make them easy to talk about like easy to talk about the narrative uh, parts of the game because that it like we're building upon it in our in our, like in the classroom collective imagination so to speak and then asking the students okay guys what are we going to do now and for me that's a completely different question that to, and asking like what should frodo have done should he have taken it <laughs> or <laughs> yeah it's it's participatory which again i think is is a, is a huge difference in 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 an interact, interactive narrative which is um of any type which is which is awesome yeah i think it's 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 the thing that makes video games exciting to me because like i say all the kind of thinking i've done about about classical storytelling as much as hitchcock can engineer a movie where the audience is screaming either in their heads or out loud at the protagonist or at the character telling them what to do like the the fact that in video games we can go that extra step and and actually hear them say that and hear them express that like feels like it's 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 taking that thing but making it even more powerful um yep and i can't i can't think of a, of a better place uh to, to unfortunately wrap up because i know tbs is almost his bedtime on school night over <laughs> over in norway but um yeah because yeah it's this has been a fantastic conversation about like the power of interactive stories like bringing you know the student and and you know the player into a story makes it you know all the more powerful and and you know, Sam, you, your, her story, I think, to me, is just this, there's a before and after for me when it comes to thinking about stories and games, both just as a player, but also as a, a teacher who, who uses games frequently to, to teach. And, um, you know, like I said, I, I, I got to get home and get all this greeting out of the way so I can go back and, and jump into telling lies because it's, I'm just at the point where I'm beginning to think I'm about to go down the narrative hill and then probably get completely slammed um so i, I gotta get on that but uh if, if you want to take a, a few seconds to plug uh you know kind of uh, your most recent stuff what, what, what would you like people to know about yeah i mean i think we plugged her story sufficiently at this point <laughs> uh so yeah uh, telling lies is my new game and it's uh 
it was an attempt to, if, if I felt like I was taking risks with her story, as much as Telling Lies shares some structural similarities, I, I wanted to pile on additional risks and, and, and do things that felt stupidly ambitious. So it is by design a bigger, messier, more colorful thing. Um, I wanted to take some of the, the ways in which people felt a connection to Viva's character in her story and, and dig into that and tell a story that was even more intimate and, and dealt with subject matter that as, as much as games had not really dealt with the subject matter in, his, in her story, I was like having succeeded with that, let's push even further. So this is a game which deals with a, a number of couples or adults in relationships and that is all meshed up in lots of questions about government and law enforcement and privacy and intimacy um, combined with little sprinkles of, of uh, it's, it's not quite as heavily gothic as her story, but there are occasional little bits and pieces that I think um, are kind of interesting textures. Um, but yeah, it's uh, with her story, I kind of naively created this idea of like, what does it look like if the story content is the thing we explore. You know, we have all these exploration verbs in video games and uh, we use them in 3D space. We explore space stations and fantasy landscapes um, and abandoned houses and, and all these fun places. But what if we throw that out and just allow the audience to explore the story? Uh, and kind of having done that with her story, with Telling Lies, I really wanted to jump in further with that in terms of how expressively you can explore video content. And we, so we, have these, these tons more video content and the way in which you are dropped into it and then encouraged to kind of scrub around in it um, is a lot more expressive um, but it, you know plays similar ideas where as a member of the audience as a player when you're dropped into the content you have a ton of questions in terms of establishing context like who is speaking who are they who are they speaking to where are we what's happening um, and slowly you kind of put those pieces together and so you have that engagement of your imagination in putting the narrative together um but you know to do that we have uh, a bunch of wonderful performances from a, a much larger array of, of actors this time around so like i say it's it's this bigger messier colorful uh treatment of of some of those ideas so yeah, hopefully people will enjoy it yeah I, like i said it's already got its hooks in me and i and i did have my that first moment where i i was able to sync up like the two different sides of the conversation by like a couple of little gaps in what they were talking about. And, and yeah, it's, there's that, there's that thrill, that dopamine hit, as you said, that, that is uh, fascinating. So uh, again, you can be found at Mr. Sam Barlow on Twitter. I think, I believe it's herstorygame.com, tellinglies.game.com. Uh, Sam Barlow, it has been an amazing nerdy pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, this, this was awesome. Thank you. It's great to be here. And uh, I have genuinely benefited from knowing people were playing her story in schools and just, you know, picking up on like the ways in which you all were talking about it and the ways that you were using that with students. That was, you know, one of those things where I, you take that on board and it kind of informs the next thing. So thanks. Thanks for that too.